Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Bizarre Foods host Andrew Zimmern talks about how to travel the world in search of new foods and interesting people. I once asked a Sakalava tribesperson, a fisherman, if he was happy 
And the reason I asked it was I just spent two days with him and I felt like he had the hardest life of anyone that I'd ever met. And he just laughed at me. You know, he said, I'm the happiest person I know. I have everything in the world. What am I? I'm not wanting for anything. And, and that was sort of a changing point for me. Plus, we make my new favorite dessert, Vivian Howard's sweet, fresh corn pudding. And Dan Pashman wonders if restaurant chefs should be offended when guests salt their food. But first, we check in with reporter Shana Sheely, who brings us the story of the world's very best tahini. Shana, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you. So let's talk about tahini. In the Middle East, of course, it's used on almost everything. I mean, obviously in hummus, but it's used, it's just one of those ubiquitous ingredients, right? Yeah, I mean, tahini is the ketchup of the Middle East. They pour it onto charred eggplants. They bake it with lamb. They stir it into salads. It's also used in a lot of sweets. And there's one special place known for the creamy paste, Nablus. And you've been there. So why don't you start by telling us something about the city? Yeah, so Nablus has this ancient tradition of making really silky, rich, smooth tahini. There are a handful of boutique tahini shops And one of my favorites is called Abu Horbi Titi. Um, His storefront is lined with bottles of tahini and halva and other sweets. And it opens into this sort of ancient tahini production room. He says tahini is like water. He eats it with everything, with all of life. Hummus, baba ganoush. He even jokes that you can eat it with mama ganoush, which isn't a real thing. So you also visited a a tahini factory, is that right? Yes, I visited a tahini factory called Karawan, which is on the outskirts of Nablus in a city called Huara. Ala Tamam, who's the owner of Karawan, says people from Nablus learn how to make tahini. It's it's a recipe and it's a process that's passed down from generation to generation. So Ala Tamam is a sixth generation tahini maker. This is our life. This is what we know about life. Even doctors in the family, they, they can't just go to their uh, hospitals or clinics. They, they have to be in the factory one day a week or a few hours a day. It's, it's something that uh, it's our oxygen. And it connects him with people all across the world. If you go to another country so far away and you go to a tahini factory, you feel like home. I, I went to visit a factory in Greece, and it was Greece. I mean, I had nothing in Greece. It was my first time in Greece. But once I got to the tahini factory, I felt like home. It's very, very, very connecting business by smell, by machines, by, by everything. So this great tahini, so it's silky and smooth. Some of the tahini, you know, you buy in a supermarket here is almost like spackle, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different animal. I remember growing up, my mom used to keep this, like, tin can of tahini in our fridge. And when I would pull it out, the tahini was separated into two parts. Right. The tahini from Nablus seems like a totally different product. Our tahini is creamier. Because we're still using the traditional cleaning and peeling and roasting process, they, they still have the smell of the ground. And you, you can't get that when you have like fully automated, 100% stainless steel materials. We have like on the old factory uh, five double stones that it's been grinding tahini for almost 100 years. So you, you wouldn't be able to get this smell from a brand new stone that comes in a couple of years ago. So how, uh, if you're in the business of processing sesame seeds into tahini in Nablus, how do you uh, export it? Isn't it hard to get it out of the West Bank uh, as just as a, as a business concern? Yes, so Allah Tamam spoke about that a lot and about some of the challenges. As a businessman, his biggest buyer is in Israel, 
and many Israelis don't care about the kosher certification, but many Israelis do. And for a long time, it was really hard for rabbis to get to the West Bank and to give a kosher certification, um, especially during times of violence. Alatamam said that there's a rabbi who comes and gives the certification, but for a while he had cameras set up in his factory Hmm. that rabbis and other cities (laughs) in Israel would watch to make sure that they were doing all of the things so that the tahini was kosher. So uh, I, I didn't know this, but there were other types of tahini. How are those made? Yeah, so the red tahini is eaten more in Gaza. It's also made out of sesame, but it's very, very roasty. Alatamam says the seeds are even burnt. They over-roast it to make it reddish because they like the taste of well-roasted tahini. It's like you eat steak. You can have it medium, you can have it well done. They used to like it well-roasted sesame seeds. Now, there's also a black, uh, which I've not heard of, a black tahini. What, What is that made from and how is that made? Yes, so black tahini is my new obsession. It's called kizha, or local people don't pronounce the kuh, so they call it izha. And it's made from pureed nigella seeds. And Alatamam says that although kizha is really popular in Palestine, he almost never exports it. I used to take it with me to England when I was a student. And a very nice Scandinavian lady from Helsinki came to me and she saw me eating this nigella and she said, Oh my God, what the hell you're eating? It's like engine oil. She told me she's never seen anything as black as this and it's edible. But you love it. Yeah, so I love it because it has a very unique, sort of bitter, sort of minty, sort of licorice-y taste. When you eat it, you can sort of feel it in the back of your throat. I started eating it with honey And it's like a shiny, thick, black paste. And in the past few weeks, I've been eating that paste just on rice cakes, which is probably the weirdest breakfast ever. (laughs) But I tell myself that it's healthy (laughs) because Palestinians say it's healthy. So when you took a tour of this factory we've been talking about, you obviously tasted the tahini. How much better was it than the best tahini you'd ever had? And how different was it? You know, I've been eating nablus tahini for a while, so I wasn't that shocked, but there was something incredible about taking a paper cup and running it under this tahini spout. Mm, Oh my God, it's warm. It's like a full cup of warm tahini. I can't, wow. I, I just I just started sipping on it, and I was like, there's no way I can finish this whole cup of tahini. And I did. It, it was so good and so rich, and it was like it was like drinking a warm cup of butter, but more flavorful. Shana, thank you very much. Um, the only thing missing is my jar of Nablus tahini. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, and always a pleasure to talk about tahini. That was reporter and producer Shana Sheely. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking your questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, what's going on? Not much. So we're about to open to the phone lines, but I do have a question. You surprise me all the time, so I'm going to surprise you with this question, which is, do you ever eat frozen dinners? Oh, dear. I, <laughs> I think oh, I got no. you. Come yes, on. I do, Chris. Yes. And I'll tell you the main reason I do, and actually this is a call to action for somebody out there, is sometimes or often I'm trying to lose weight. And the best way to do is know the calorie count for me. And so there are those frozen meals out there, like Amy's, which are organic. And I know exactly what the calorie count is. So So what's your favorite Amy's frozen dinner? Well, I like the Mexican ones. There's a couple of good Indian ones as well. They tend to be, uh, they're vegetarian also. So yes, I do eat those. I've also had some of the Rick Bayless frozen dinners that are very good. I mean, I'm not proud of it because, you know, I should technically just go make my own, but... Well, when you write your autobiography, it would be called From La Tulip to the Frozen Dinner. <laughs> oh, dear. The, what, what, oh, what, how grim. <laughs> one chef's voyage. Right. Okay, time to open up All the right. phone lines. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
Hi, my name is Carl, and I'm calling from New York City. Okay. How can we help you? I'm fighting a losing battle against cauliflower. Oh, no. So uh, <laughs> everywhere I look, I see these beautiful golden brown cauliflowers. I don't know if they use a face tune on it or they actually come out that way, but mine never does. It's either too hard, too soft, burns. It never gets that golden color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eyal Shani. He, yep. he perfected the, the whole cauliflower. Uh-huh. How do you get that color? Well, uh, what are you putting on the cauliflower before you roast it? Well, first I, I uh, steam it for about five to seven minutes. Yeah. Then I put olive oil on yeah. it. And I put it in the oven about 400. That so far sounds well, about But wait perfect. a second. Between steaming and roasting, do you let it dry out a little bit on the counter? Because it's going to be wet after you steam it. No. You should definitely dry it out before you put it in the oven. I think that's a good idea. But basically that's about it, right? Olive oil and, and it should get to that color. One of our editors actually has had that recipe on location, and it did look different than what we did here. So I agree with you. There was a little translation problem. We've done lots of whole roasted cauliflower recipes, and our solution is to do a, an infused oil with some sort of spice, et cetera, and that gives you the color. The spices themselves give you the color. Oh, I see. That's an easy cheat, you know. But drying out the cauliflower before you roast it might help and make sure there's plenty of oil on it because oil will brown in the oven. You know, I have to ask both of you, though, uh, why are we roasting it whole? Because what's so great about cauliflower when you cut it into florets, smaller pieces, or slice it, it's thinner, and you put it in the oven, is then you get much more of that sort of toasty, nutty, caramelized, yummy, crispy cauliflower. Here, the only part that's crispy is the outside. You know what? You're right. I think I fell for the presentation. It's the presentation. I think a whole roasted cauliflower is a thing of beauty. Oh. And my solution Who would be... Who wants to eat the inside? It's sort of like me and roast turkey. I just want to eat the skin and then I'm done. You know, in this case, <laughs> you're just eating the outside of the cauliflower and then you get into the inside, which is boring and steamed. Chris, I love you. I always follow whatever you say, but I think Sarah I'm, wins I'm today. leaning towards what she's saying because I think it's right. You know, forget about the presentation. Just cut it into pieces and get more of that crispy all over the place. If you just want to go for taste, do what Sarah says. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? David Myers from Suquamish, Washington. I have a question about uh, ceramic cookware. Uh-huh. I have a couple of nice pieces of uh, Emil Henry cookware mm-hmm. uh, Dutch ovens. Yep. I tried to uh, brown some lamb shanks on the stovetop with one, and I ended up cracking it. Uh-huh. I used a diffuser, which was just a big piece of uh, tin foil wrapped into a ring to keep right. it up off right. of the electric burner. And um been to Portugal, have had some amazing dishes served in terracotta pots. Right. And I was wondering, what can I do to do it the way they do it? <laughs> did you start on a low heat, and did you have any oil in it? I did sort of build the heat up. There was olive oil in the bottom of it. I think I just got it too hot, obviously. That's very possible. Yeah, there's also, if you go to Emile Henri's site, I think they do have a line which you can use in very hot ovens and also on uh, Direct burners. Flames. Yeah, I, I think they do now uh, have one, so you might want to check that out. Sure. I think it's called Flame Ceramic. In general, also, are you seasoning these pots at all, the regular ones, before you use them, too? You mean like you would do with cast iron? No, like you would do with pottery. For example, I have a rice cooker uh, from Japan that's terracotta, and you simmer water and rice in it for a while, and you get that starchy coating, which also coats the bottom of the pot, which is nice. Is it glazed or unglazed? It's glazed. Uh It's glazed, yeah. Yeah, that's something else you might want to do. But I think Sarah's right. You just want to be very careful about the amount of heat you use and make sure you have something in the pot. Yeah, you don't want to heat them naked. Because it'll crack. Dave, let me ask you another question. It cracked when it was on the burner or after you took it off? No, it was on the burner. Okay. It went pop. I think it, you got it too hot. Because another thing I was yeah. going to say about these pots is they're delicate. If you put it on a cold surface or let's say you took whatever items were in it and then put cold water in it, it goes into thermal shock and that can make it break too. But it sounds like okay. you just used a heat that was too high. 
One other question was, if I had poured boiling water into it first, is there any, you know, like preheating or anything like that that might have uh, given me a better outcome? Or preheating uh, it? It's an oven? interesting question. If you put it in the oven while it was preheating? Yeah. But again, yeah yes, that, because that would be nice and slow. But if there's got to okay. be food in it. Yeah, there's got to be something in it, though. Yeah. But you're right. Okay. That would be a better way to do it. Okay. I would just go by the one that doesn't crack. Make <laughs> your life easy. I'm always looking yeah. for the shortcut. Yeah, me too. Yeah. As particularly as I get older. <laughs> anyway, Dave, thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a culinary question or any other question, give us a ring. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Helen from um, Linfield, Mass. Helen, how are you? Good. How can we help you? This is a call I had talked about a month ago about my yogurt being slimy. Oh, yeah. That was a bit of a stumper. Well. That was a stumper. Yeah, that was a difficult one. We didn't have, we asked you lots of questions, but we didn't have many answers. I, I know, but you did go back to the drawing board and tell us what happened. It's successful. So I did what you said. I put my crock pot in the dishwasher, and um, I made it again, and it, I had to throw it out. It was worse than before. Then I borrowed somebody's, and I did a new starter. Yeah. And it came out better, but it was still not right. Then I made it again to strain it. I was using my cheesecloth, but I'd be washing it. And so I didn't uh-huh. do that. I just kept using a new cheesecloth. I don't know. It, all of a sudden, it's perfect. It's um, back to That's my old way of having it. So, so but you're no longer really happy. You are making in the crock pot, or you're not making in the crock pot? I am. Oh, so then I, the last time I made it was the other day, and what I did was I went back to my original crock pot and made it, and it came out fine. So maybe it was the cheesecloth that was the culprit. Yeah, I thought that maybe, but then I wasn't sure because I would use that for straining, but it would when I was making it, I could see that it wasn't coming out even before I strained uh, it, So, but it might have been. Wait, no, now I'm totally confused. So you put the crock pot, the inner liner in the dishwasher and it came out worse. You tried a new starter and it, it came was a, out better. It was better, but not it came out better. best. And then what did you do the third time? So then I got a new crock pot and a new starter. And when the new crock pot and new starter it worked? It was getting better. But then you went it back to your um, old crock pot and it worked? Yeah, I went to my old crock pot <laughs> again and it's Good. <laughs> what was the model, the make of the old crop pot versus the new one? Was it the same model? No, they were different. I wonder if the temperatures of the two crock pots, you know, I do know from experience that crock pots will vary and they also get up to temperature at a different rate. Yeah, I mean, but I, it's now it worked in both of them. The other thing I did do, which I never used to before, and it came out okay, is I covered the crock pot with um, a couple of blankets just to make yeah. sure the temperature was okay. And so now I keep doing that. I think it's something else. I think you, you were praying over it or something, and then you stopped. <laughs> you didn't sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> something else. This is, uh, there are dark forces at work here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. One more question. Using the blankets... Was that associated with success all the time, or that's just another random red herring here? It might have been random. I never used to use blankets before, and it came out, but I thought I would try it, and now I just keep using the blankets because At least, look, the good news is you're making yogurt. It's working. You're happy. Yep. And we'll take and as much credit as we deserve, Absolutely. which is none. Yeah. yeah. I think you should take the credit. I'll take, yeah. I'll take 10%. Okay. I know. It was great. Alan. Thank you so much, and, and I'm you glad it's working out. Looping back and giving us thank, an update. Yeah, thank okay. you very much. All right. Take care. Me. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, we're chatting with Andrew Zimmern. That in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Andrew Zimmern has visited over 170 countries around the world in search of bizarre foods and also fascinating people. Host of the Travel Channel's Bizarre Foods, Zimmern has also worked as a chef, a podcast host, and now he's the author of a chapter book for children called AZ and the Lost City of Ophir. Andrew, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. I just have to say something about you I really like, which is you're very honest about your background and what you've gone through. And so many people who are successful with a TV show, you know, you don't get to see the rest of it. Uh, I'm just quoting about you. He's pawned his grandmother's jewelry to try and drink himself to death. At his lowest point, homeless and squatting in lower Manhattan, 
he had taken to swiping purses off chairs in the Upper East Side to fund his habits. So here's my question. A lot of people think life is sort of this continuous path, but you probably <laughs> think it isn't. So how do you think about life in, in, in the ups and downs? Life is the most ambiguous ocean to navigate that there is. If you don't learn to lean into ambiguity, it's got to be really harder than it has to be. Kids get sick, parents die, jobs are gained, jobs are lost. I mean, whatever it is, happens to everyone, everyone. And, uh, you know, not only did I learn how to navigate ambiguity and be okay with it in my recovering life, but I also learned it in my life doing TV in far-flung places because I would assume unfairly that some person that I had met in some situation felt a certain way about a certain thing. And because I live transparently, I would force myself to ask them, no matter how uncomfortable it was. And I once asked a Sakalava tribesperson, a fisherman, if he was happy. And the reason I asked it was I had just spent two days with him, and I felt like he had the hardest life of anyone that I'd ever met. And I asked him the question, and he just laughed at me. And this was a fellow who had no possessions, lived in a house that he built himself on a beach that blew down once a month. And he laughed at me and just, you know, he said, I'm the happiest person I know. I have everything in the world. What am I? I'm not wanting for anything. And in my sort of American TV guy mindset, I had interpreted everything about his life through my lens. And, and that was sort of a changing point for me in terms of being honest with myself and leaning into ambiguity. And it, it was a marked departure that my life took after that. Every brand, every show, every magazine, every book has this sort of secret formula that you know when you go into a yep. show, and I certainly have it for what I do. What's the secret formula? What's the thing that draws people to what you do? Um, it, it's a couple of things. The first thing was, and it's a quote of mine that's, that I see a lot, you know, food is good. Food with a story is better. Food with a story you haven't heard of is better than that. And food with a story that you haven't heard of, but you can relate to is better than all of it. Mm. So when I'm in Nicaragua, everyone loves barbecued meat, right? When I'm in Nicaragua and we're with some folks and they're hunting lizards in the rainforest there and then barbecuing them and and basting them with brown sugar mixed with the juice of wild sour oranges everyone can relate to it it looks like the family barbecue and the kids come running in and argue everyone's arguing about who gets the legs which are the best part so we always had family meals which i thought were the key thing i also thought that i was never going to make fun of the food if I didn't like something that you made, I would just compliment, you know, oh, my gosh, I had such a great time at dinner tonight. I learned so much. I mean, you know, there's other things to say instead of, you know, your lizard porridge was lousy. But see, here's the funny thing. There's a thousand ways to cook a pork chop. But once you learn how to actually cook it the right way and it can stay moist and delicious, then you can go add all the creativity and, you know, right. zhuzh it up as much as you want. Right. What I, what I found out that was so fascinating, I think it took about four or five years, but I finally had eaten uoks, these coconut grubs, in the six countries where they were most commonly found. Ecuador, the Philippines. It, there's a certain coconut palm, and they grow in standing water in tropical rainforests. And this tiny little grub makes its way in there and starts eating the rotted wood pulp. And they grow to be the size... Uh, bigger than a human thumb. <laughs> and I ate them in four or five different countries. And every single time they were, they were okay. Uh, it, a lot of them tasted like the rotted wood pulp that was inside them. And then I was, I was at a, a Saturday market in a tiny little town in the Peruvian river system. And there was a vendor who had these giant uoks, these big wriggly coconut grubs. And his kids were using their thumbnail and slitting them open, taking the stomachs out. And then mom was skewering them and hmm. dad was grilling six or eight of these grubs on a stick 
until they were brown and crispy, like hard crispy. And then he'd put a piece of steamed yucca on the end of it and sold it to you for like a quarter. And I asked him through our translator, you know, what what were they doing with them? And he says, well, I'm taking the stomach out because who wants to eat the rotten wood? And I was like, oh, my. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. My gosh. All these other cultures, they're used to this rotted wood taste. But here, they don't like that rotted wood taste, so they take the stomach out. makes all the sense in the world. What's left behind is the body of this fatty grub crisps up like chicken skin on the grill. And I said, oh, my gosh. It was a huge eye-opener for me. Just like there are right ways and wrong ways to cook pork chop or roasted chicken, there's a right way and a wrong way to cook a coconut grub. Yeah, we tested these coconut grubs 50 different ways. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the only way that works. Um, You told me about the most compelling moment with a fisherman in Madagascar. And you asked him if he was happy, and that was a a life-changing moment. Were there other moments in the show that weren't necessarily life-changing but really unexpected? Oh, yes. When you travel, you become the best version of yourself. You're more curious. You ask more questions. The power of travel is transformative. And I, I remember being in Botswana, with the uh, the Juntoisi tribe, and they were going to catch these birds with us uh, for dinner one night. And the idea was uh, they went and they got some rope. They have no personal possessions, only communal possessions. So they went to the bag that holds all the tribe's possessions, and they didn't feel the rope was strong enough. So they all decided to make rope. And the kids go out and got some reeds, and the women start splitting them into strands. And then all 28 members of this one family group sit down and weave, using their fingers and toes, weaved string. Hmm. Like 20 10-foot lengths of string so we could make 20 snap snares to catch 20 birds. And then we took these pieces of new string. And we walked three miles in one direction and got some seeds and berries and walked three miles in another direction where we knew the birds liked to to go. And we dropped these seeds and nuts that they loved and then made these snap snares and walked away. And the next day we came back and all 20 snap snares had a bird hanging from it. And in an effort to be helpful, I took out my field knife and went to cut the rope to free the birds. And These people started screaming and yelling at me, and the translator was like, put the knife away, put the knife away. And I quickly put the knife away, and I just looked at him like, what did I do? What did I do? And the guy looked at me and says, why would you cut the string? We made that string. And I said, right, but now we're – and I realized they untie the string and keep reusing it until the string falls apart. And I had not been a big recycler. I am now the greenest son of a gun on my block <laughs> because I had that life-changing moment where it was it was pointed out to me how wasteful my mindset was. Now, up until that point, there was no amount of TV commercials, you know, kids events at school, anything that was, you know, I still threw stuff in the garbage that should have gone in the recycling until that moment. And I've been lucky enough to have dozens of moments like that. So you just wrote uh, a book, a kid's book, AZ in the Lost City of Ophir. Just quickly, what's the basic concept and and why did you write the book? I I wrote it because I thought that there was – literature was missing for kids 6 to 13. There are really great angst-filled novels for teenagers. There was great stuff for six and unders. But there's something missing in the middle, real adventure fiction that parents could really feel good about their kids reading, but the kids, more importantly, would find entertaining. Uh, And it's been the greatest project I've ever worked on. Proceeds benefit no kid hungry. So you're doing a good thing by buying it. So my last question is this. Uh, Do you have some advice for people in terms of how they can really experience a place better. I don't mean going into Madagascar. I mean, it could be Paris. It could be London. It could be a typical tourist destination. It could be the other side of Chicago. It could be the other side of Chicago. Um, I think what it is is to, when you're traveling, to travel with arms open, not arms crossed. Don't close your mind to the possibilities of adventure. I think if we can all remember just to be a little bit more Peter Pan and a little less of Ebenezer Scrooge, we would we would be much better, much happier when we travel. It's okay if the night doesn't happen perfectly. So many of us have invested so much in these vacations. And I and I get it. It's the family budget. It's the one week of vacation. But you want to know something? 
you got to lean into that ambiguity. You got to take risks and you got to put yourself out there. Be transparent with people. My family loves it. I, I We check into a hotel on vacations and I start interrogating. That's what my son calls it. <laughs> Dad, why are you interrogating everyone? Because I asked the guy at the door. I asked the lady behind the counter, where do you like to eat in the neighborhood? This this actually happened to us the last time that we were in Colombia. We were in Cartagena and we ended up eating three of our nine meals in the same restaurant because it was so fantastic. We just sat out on the street drinking fruit juice and eating frittanga that was out of this world. Hmm. Someone had a boom box. There was music. They were dancing in the street. It was our favorite place. You can't buy a reservation at that place. You just have, there's no sign. You just have to go. Andrew Zimmern, it's been uh, an enormous pleasure and also a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you. That was Andrew Zimmern, chef, television host, and author of AZ and the Lost City of Ophir. So why do people travel? It's hardly a relaxing vacation. And if you travel to meet new people, well, it's hard to get to know someone on a tight schedule. You can, however, travel for food or experience or a change of pace or just for adventure. Or you can travel like Andrew Zimmern. He met the happiest man in the world living in a shack on a beach in Madagascar. And that, in fact, may be the very best reason to travel. Leave home to discover yourself rather than a new destination. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, sweet, fresh corn pudding. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, one of my favorite uh, radio interviews of the last year was Vivian Howard, the chef from North Carolina, has a TV show, cookbooks, of course. And in one of her books, Deep Run Roots, she has a recipe that she calls sweet, fresh corn pudding, which, a.k.a., it's essentially a corn souffle. It is spectacular. It is now my... We've made it like a dozen times here just because I want to keep eating it. It is so addictive. So how does this work? Well, Chris, it's not that different from a typical souffle. You have your egg whites that are folded into basically a bechamel at the end, and we have some vanilla flavor in there. There's some richness from the egg yolks. But what makes this a little bit different is the corn that you talked about. Because what's interesting, Chris, is we puree the corn into the batter, and when the starch is released, that really gives it some structure, and that's where you get that foolproof, it's not going to fall thing sort of happening. So we start with, is it frozen kernels, fresh kernels? I mean, how do you use the corn? Yeah, so that depends, Chris. If it's summer and there's great corn available, take the time to shuck it and use that. But frozen corn works really well, too. And you're going to cook it no matter what. So we just simmer it with a little bit of sugar and salt. And then some heavy cream that's been steeped with vanilla bean is added in. It's really simple, but as you mentioned, really delicious. And then you add that into the flour and butter bechamel and then fold in the egg whites, right? Exactly. This is a great recipe to impress your guests because it's foolproof, so no stress, and everyone gets their own little individual dessert. You know, Catherine, you're not as old as I am, but when you get to be my age, you just don't care about impressing your guests. What you care about is cooking something you can get seconds for. So I always make a double batch. So Vivian Howard's Sweet Fresh Corn Pudding. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Sweet Fresh Corn Pudding at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman wonders whether it's rude to salt your food at dinner parties and restaurants. We'll be right back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Most Year Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Molt and I will tackle a few more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is David from San Francisco. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. How can we help you today? I'm a pretty accomplished, savory cook on top of the stove and in the oven, but I'm completely incompetent when it comes to anything that involves flour. Rising is an issue, and my question is was a couple of things. One is, does flour or any of the baking powder, baking soda, does that go bad? Does that need to be replaced periodically? And the other question is, what's the difference between self-rising and all-purpose flour? Flour does go bad, especially whole wheat flour. I would always keep whole wheat or specialty flours, rye, almond flour, et cetera, in a refrigerator. That's really the best place okay. to store it. Or the freezer. But uh, you can't fit, I can't fit my all-purpose flour and my bread flour and my cake flour in there. I would say they're definitely good for six to eight months, maybe a year. I think it gets a stale taste. It does. And you also have to watch the bugs. Sometimes you get those little mealy guys in there. So if you're going to store it in a cool, dark place, good idea to put it in a canister that's airtight or in a plastic bag that's airtight. What's the difference between self-rising and all-purpose flour? Love when do you use one or the other? Self-rising flour is all-purpose flour with the addition of, for every cup of flour, one and a quarter teaspoons of baking powder and about a quarter teaspoon of salt. So oh. you don't need to get self-rising no. flour. Modern recipes don't call don't for it Don't call for it as much. Wasn't it more mostly a southern thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And when do you use baking soda? And what? how does that factor into, like, biscuits and popovers? Baking powder is a leavener, and it includes baking soda. It has an acid in it, so the baking soda can react with the acid. It's self-contained. Baking soda does not have the acid with it, which means that the recipe needs to be acidic for the baking soda to be activated. So a recipe with buttermilk, a recipe with raisins, et et cetera, molasses, a lot of things will be acidic. Brown sugar is acidic, will react with it. So that's why some recipes call for powder. For example, if you make pancakes with milk instead of buttermilk, you need baking powder. A buttermilk pancake, you could use baking soda. And some recipes will use both to sort of balance it out. But that's the basic rule. And how you know if they're still kicking, because they do lose their oomph, is you take your baking powder and add warm water to it. And if it bubbles up, you know it's still alive. And with baking soda, you add a little bit of vinegar, you know, take a little bit of vinegar and add some baking soda to it. And if it bubbles up like crazy, it's doing well. They do have a shelf life, too. Those have shelf dates as well as the flour itself. Yes. Yeah, I would just every year dump your baking powder and baking soda. Yeah, I mean, and baking powder now is double acting. So it'll start to react with a liquid, and then it reacts at temperatures over 120 degrees. So it has a double, as it says, double acting. Super. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your help. All yeah. Right. Take care. Thanks for calling. Thanks, David. Love the show. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, yes, I'm Marilyn Rath from Denver. How are you? I'm good. And um, I have a question about silver skin. Mm-hmm. Okay? Silver skin on yep. spare ribs and on baby uh, uh, back. Pork tenderloin, yeah. Lamb, rack of lamb. Yeah. Yes. Do you find it necessary to remove the silver skin all the time? I do. 
especially okay. if it's on like a pork tenderloin. It's a very tender piece of meat. Uh, and I try yeah. to get as much of it off as possible. And a paring knife works great, a very sharp paring knife. And sort of insert it under the silver skin and then push away from you. Then lift it up. Yes. And then you can cut Move it back. going yeah. back the other way. You don't uh-huh. have to get rid of all of it, but it'll be tough and gnarly. It never really softens. Sort of tightens it up. And, it tightens up, yeah. yeah. So I agree with that. Okay. Take it off where yeah, we can. Off. Take yes. it off. Take okay. it off. Okay. And another thing, I'm into yams and sweet potatoes lately. Yeah. I just had at a friend's house, and they were quite delicious. She just roasted them, cut small in her oven, and my God, it was like a new dish mini. So they're more popular now in the last few years. Do you think so too, huh? Well, yeah. I, I think so. There's more varieties available at the store. And also, they're so good for you. You know, people are eating more vegetables yeah. and trying to be healthier. And- right. Well, there's a lot of great ways to cook them. Actually, Yotam Adolenghi's books, like Plenty or Jerus- uh, Jerusalem. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he peels them and then slices them into rounds and then bakes them, roasts oh. them on a baking sheet with spices and oil and then uses some flavored Greek yogurt on top. So there are lots of different oh. ways of serving them, which are a little different than, you know, when I grew up. My favorite is to roast them and then have them throw them in a food processor with chipotles and adobo with a little bit of the adobo oh. because they're so mm. sweet so they can take the chili and then, of course, a little bit of butter. And they're yes. so good pureed with chipotles and adobo. Mm, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's dinner. It uh, sounds delicious. And I must say I enjoy both your shows very much. Thank well, thanks, Marilyn. Much. Thanks for calling. Yes, take care. Thank take you. Care. Regards yeah. from Denver. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Whether you're a beginner cook or a pro, Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. So please call us at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Monty from Colorado Springs. Hi, Monty. How can we help you today? Uh, I was just wondering about boiling eggs. I know how to boil them, but I want to know. Why sometimes they don't peel right? Oh boy! The, well, this is yeah. This is like one of those age-old questions that um, people have spent hundreds of hours yeah. testing. We'll we, see. we have a method, but I, I have to say, it's not foolproof. Really? I think you no. and I have the same method right now, which is steaming the eggs. Steam them and then throw them into ice water. Water. Yeah. Have you tried that, Monty? I learned to boil them for just five minutes. Shut it off. Put the lid on for just ten minutes. And that's it. And then I put it in uh, cold water to stop the right. cooking process. But sometimes they just don't feel right. And other people say they have the same problems. If you like a soft-boiled egg, I steam it for seven. Uh, the white is firm. The yolk is not. Twelve minutes if you want a fully uh, hard-boiled cooked. egg. Yeah. And then ice water. You know, I crack them and then I roll them in my hand like yep. a ball, and uh, they seem to feel better. You know what they also? Do. You roll them in just a little bit. Yeah. What I do is, because you've had them in a bowl of cold water, I put mine in a bowl of ice water. After they've been there for a little while, I crack them, put them back in the ice water so that the water sort of seeps under the holes in the shells. And then I take uh-huh. them out and uh-huh. I actually peel them under running water. Uh, and start at the larger that, that end yeah. and try to get under the yeah. membrane, yeah. Uh, which really helps. Mm-hmm. I will bet anyone yeah. here, if you take a dozen eggs, no matter what method you use, you will not get all 12 to peel easily. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to write a book, How to Boil an Egg. You know, yeah, so. really. <laughs> Monty, thanks for calling. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is Milk Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Tracy, and here's my tip. If you're into cooking tofu, I'd recommend getting a tofu press, which helps drain excess water out of the tofu. Not only does this help the tofu absorb the flavor of whatever marinade or sauce you're using, but it also makes the tofu crispier when you cook it. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's regular contributor and troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Good. I uh, am waiting to be uh, charmed and surprised. Okay. Well, I'll shoot for at least one of those two. Okay. 
Do you get invited to many dinner parties? Not like big fancy events. I mean, like invited to people's homes. There's one couple who invites us to dinner. We're down to one other couple now. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and I'm sure it's it's nothing to do with your charming personality, Chris, but I'll bet that it's more having to do with the fact that people are intimidated to have you over for dinner because they think, like, you're a guy who knows a lot about food. You're going to have really high standards. They're not going to be able to impress you. That may be, but it turns out, of all the people I know in the food world, all of us would be perfectly happy with some boiled potatoes and a glass of wine or a hot dog. Right. We'd be more grateful than any other guest you could ever possibly imagine. Right, because we're so happy to not be the ones cooking. <laughs> we're so happy to be invited to someone else's house, yeah. Right, right. right. But so let's say you're in, you were invited to someone else's house for dinner, and you know that they're intimidated to have you over, and you take one bite of the food, and it's good, it's perfectly good, but it just needs more salt. Would you ask for salt and add it to your food at the table, or would you not do that for fear of insulting the host? That's easy. I'd ask for the salt. I talked to a couple who says they have an ongoing fight because the wife likes to add salt to her food at the table. And if it's something the husband cooks, she always wants to salt it because she likes more salt, and he gets insulted. Oh, no. My, my wife always adds salt to what I cook. Uh, and, but there, there's a way around this, by the way. Which is what, what? What advice would you give to this couple? You just say, look, you, the food's perfectly salted, but I like that little extra punch of salt at the end on top of the food. Yeah, there, there is something different about finishing salt sprinkled right. right on the top and the end. That's different from salt that's been cooked yes. into the food. So you, you would make that argument and, and to try to make the person feel better. I would say it's my own personal peccadillo. Uh, I happen to like it, and uh, the food is perfect. Okay. I don't know. If you said that in my house, I feel like it would still hurt my feelings, Chris. I'm just going to be honest with you. I wouldn't say that in your house. I'd say the food was undersalted, and I need the salt. <laughs> Dan, we're friends, man. What? All right. Well, that so so that does get to a larger issue, though, Chris. As you said, so so your wife is not bashful at asking for salt, no. but it's becoming a thing more and more, especially in upscale restaurants and even in kind of like your nicer gastro pub or bistro type place. They don't put salt out on the table. I would like to know what you think of that trend. Well, I've noticed it, but I would say, in a shocking number of cases, I find food. Uh, at restaurants in the last 10 years, five years, to, to be tended to be undersalted. I mean, restaurants used to add a lot of sugar and salt and other things because that was the way of making food taste good. But I think due to health concerns or whatever. And, and so do you feel like the underlying or sometimes explicit explanation for why there is no salt on the table is basically the chef wants it this way? Yes. It seems like a symptom of chef worship, that they're going to take the salt off the table, but salt is so personal, you know? And, and so I feel like we should all be given that power at the table, and these fancy chefs shouldn't yes. be so insecure. Well, I, I agree with chefs who say, look, you have it my way, right? I mean, you can't substitute, you know, th this is the dish. I get that. But salt is an exception because everyone likes a different level of salt, and I think that's up to the diner. So in your living room, if someone was just like, oh, can you make this without mushrooms? I don't like mushrooms. You'd be like, get lost. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but, 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 but if I asked for more salt, you would, you would give me the salt. You would not be insulted. No, I, I think it's okay. I mean, I, I think that's, that's a minor adjustment. It, well— in restaurants where there's no salt on the table, they do show up and ask you about pepper, which seems to me a contradiction. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You're, I had not thought of that, but that's a, a very good point. And, and, and also, like, pepper is not as fundamental as salt, but I think right. that the idea of the server coming and presenting you with – and they get this ginormous, like, clown-sized pepper grinder, and it's very much – it's a show. But the idea of just being like, can I have a little bit of salt because I don't like the way this tastes, you know, that they can't handle. Well, here's the deal. As a chef, you have the right to do anything you want in your restaurant. But, but there is some sense of compromise. It seems to me salt is one of those areas where there's a little give and take, right? I mean, it, it seems to me that's fair enough. A little give and take. So maybe that husband and wife were having issues over salt. That's all they need, like any good relationship, right, Chris? A little give and take. And usually you'll get the salt. Right, right. But, but, but sometimes it comes with a, a condescending facial expression, which I don't need, and which I yes. think uh, is indicative of a lack of hospitality that is endemic in fancy restaurants. If you would like to experience lack of hospitality, go to a very expensive restaurant in New York and ask for the salt. <laughs> so 
we both say, no matter how expensive or fancy the restaurant, if the customer asks for salt, let there be salt. Yeah. Dan, thank you. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Dan Pashman asked whether it's an insult to ask for salt at restaurants, but my question is why chefs have taken salt off the table in the first place. Well, an article by Kate Crater in Bloomberg offers five reasons. One, cool salt shakers get stolen. Two, old salt shakers are too frumpy looking. Three, open salt dishes require that salt gets thrown out in between seatings. Four, salt clutters up the table. And five, table salt is a cheap downscale product inconsistent with high-end dining. But the real reason, I suspect, is that celebrity chefs think that their food is art. One does not mess with a masterpiece. If, however, you consider food to be dinner, then by all means ask for that old shaker of salt. The customer is, as they say, always right. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening. Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The music by Tube Up Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>